the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you tuning in. Remember, you can follow us and get podcasts at danproftshow.com. You can uh, also download podcasts at Spotify and iTunes. Follow us on social media at Dan Prof Show as well as at Dan Proft. On Instagram at Prof Dan. Okay, that's plenty of that. So you've got all kinds of ways to contact Trace Me. Uh, we begin with uh, a discussion of uh, the latest on COVID-19, uh, all layers of issues around it. The CDC really seems to have their eye on the ball. In a letter obtained by NPR, signed by more than 1,000 employees at the CDC, reads in part, At CDC, we have a powerful platform from which to create real change. By declaring racism a public health crisis, the agency has an unprecedented opportunity to to leverage the power of science to confront this insidious threat that undermines the health and strength of our entire nation. The letter addressed to uh, CDC Director Robert Redfield. Hmm. CDC, NIH. Uh, Mission creep is a problem. Agency mission creep is a problem. When you get far afield from your mission, uh, you don't do a good job of fulfilling your mission. And so the FDA, CDC, uh, mishandling uh, or lack of preparation for the necessary testing capacity back in February that put us behind where we could have been. I thought that was one of the lessons learned, apparently not by more than a thousand employees at the CDC that now want to play uh, racial politics in the context of the presidential election rather than, I would think, be just about all hands on deck. I know you can do more than one thing at the same time, particularly in a big agency. But I would think most hands would be on deck and most focus would be on this pandemic that seems to be dominating the news and uh, the policymaking. It says something about uh, the culture inside some of these government agencies that uh, should not go unnoticed. Well, HHS secretary speaking of another agency and uh, talking a little bit about a little bit about uh, school reopening. And uh, Dr. Scott Atlas, the former head of neuroradiology at uh, Stanford Medical Center was on with Martha McCallum, repeating somewhat what you've heard him say on this show when we've spoken with him as well. And he's not alone. He's sort of incredulous that we're having this conversation about whether or not to reopen schools, not just based on the science, but even based on Tony Fauci's exchange last or a couple of weeks ago with Rand Paul now before a Senate committee where Rand Paul was making the case for school reopenings. And Tony Fauci said he agrees that we need to get kids back in school. So what exactly is the counter argument? I'm not sure I'm hearing one. This is Scott Atlas. 
two points I want to make. One is that teaching is a young profession. In the United States, half the teachers are 40 or less and a quarter of them are under 30. 90% are under 60 in public schools. They have almost zero risk from this. And for those high-risk teachers, which there are some, if they believe in masks and social distancing, don't they know how to do that by now? And if they're still afraid to do their job, why can't they teach from a distance? If they think social distancing works, teach in the class. If they think distance learning works, teach from home. But the problem here, and this is the biggest point of all, I never hear anyone talk about the harms of closing schools. The harms are against the children. Anyone who prioritizes children would open the schools. That's just counterfactual to say, that uh, you know the children are not the risk or you know we're at risk here when we see the harms to children most children uh, learn most of what's in school from social engagement from learning how to uh, resolve yeah, conflicts from true. dealing with others this is obvious when children learn to that they need a hearing aid or glasses that's done in school there are over almost a quarter of a million apparently reported child abuse cases yeah. missed because children's child abuse is most noticed in the schools and so i mean i'm not sure we are the only country in the world this is a level of hysteria like this is something i feel like i'm living in a kafka novel here uh, i think scott atlas is right we're all in the castle right now for more on all of this and more we're pleased to be joined by alex berzow he's the vice president of scientific communications at the american council on science and health phd microbiologist and columnist for usa today alex thanks for joining us again appreciate it thanks for having me on is it a, is there a case to be made for keeping schools closed? I, I'm having a hard time uh, understanding what it would be. Uh-huh. Um, I think that um, I don't support any type of top-down decision. I don't think that you know if, if if we believe that local jurisdictions have have autonomy to some extent and are able to make local decisions um, on their own without interference from the federal government, that's sort of a, a standard conservative position, then I think schools should make those decisions on their own. Let, let them decide what they want to do. But my goodness, I think we ought to open them up. Um, the, the damage that we're doing to kids, I mean, essentially what we're doing is, is an, a gigantic social experiment on our children, which is, well, let's, go, let's see what happens to a bunch of kids if we don't let them see other kids for several months or a year, and we interrupt their education and development. Let's see what happens to them. Like, that's essentially what we're doing, and I think that's a scary uh, experiment that we're doing. I think the idea that we should, I completely agree with, with the, the gentleman that you played a, an audio clip of, of, the idea that we're even having a debate should schools reopen is insane. Obviously, they should reopen. The question is, is how do we do it? How do we do it in a way that keeps teachers safe if they're afraid? How do we do that keeps uh, parents safe if the kids get sick and they bring something home? Uh, that's the sort of thing that, that's the sort of conversation we should be having. How do we prepare for reopening our schools, not should we reopen our schools? That That's the wrong question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what we're finding out and because it's very interesting on a college campus, college campuses like Georgetown, uh, professors can choose to teach in class or, or not teach in class. There was an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal about one who's going back to teach an ethics professor explaining he feels it's his obligation to do so. Uh, but at the K through 12 level, it's not happening. Now, this gets beyond uh, the virus and, and, and microbiology, but I mean, it's it's just very clear uh, that there is resistance based on convenience and based on the interests of the adults and, frankly, based on the structural infirmities of centrally planned systems uh, in terms of trying to be nimble and make accommodations for some teachers while uh, making different accommodations for other teachers. 
they just don't want to do it. You know, it's just, uh, no, it's, it, it's that's what one, it is. They just don't want to. Right. It's a one size fits all. You know, if one school does it, they all have to do it. If one teacher does it, they all have to do it. And that, and that is just it's bureaucratic groupthink yes. that is very, very, very counterproductive. And, um, yeah, the, the inflexibility of the bureaucracy and of teachers unions. And it's 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 infuriating. Uh, I wanted to uh, uh, get to a couple other topics uh, under the umbrella COVID-19 here, including this uh, piece that uh, you wrote about um, vaccines as we got some good news from the uh, Moderna vaccine trials, I guess that will expand uh, towards the end of this month. Uh, we got some good news yesterday in terms of uh, the fact that uh, the 45 or so patients in trial were actually producing antibodies when given this uh, mm-hmm. this potential vaccine. But uh, you you uh, uh, you know point up some cautionary notes about vaccines since we're looking at uh, anything that may come to market under the under the rubric vaccine as a panacea, uh, the vaccines change susceptibility to unrelated diseases, sometimes for the worse. Explain. Yeah, so this has actually been known for quite some time that vaccines can have off-target effects or non-specific effects. You inject somebody with a vaccine for, for a disease, and then they all of a sudden seem to be immune to other diseases we didn't vaccinate against. And this was discovered with measles, for instance, that kids seem to do better against other respiratory diseases when they're vaccinated against measles. Hmm. Same thing now we saw with tuberculosis, that people who are injected with the tuberculosis vaccine, it's called BCG, seem to have a benefit against other respiratory viruses. Why? Who knows? The immune system is incredibly complicated. We don't fully understand it. And there seems to be some benefits to getting a vaccine that go beyond what we would expect. On the flip side, there seem to be some downsides to vaccines that go beyond what we would expect. And there has been some research that shows some negative health effects from various combinations of vaccines or um, people, some people getting vaccinated and being more susceptible to other illnesses. This is not really a concern in our country. Uh, because we have an advanced healthcare system, and you know, if, if any side effects happen, they can generally be treated and taken care of in the hospital. So these these negative effects were seen in Africa, like extremely poor countries. So it's not a concern for Americans. But having said that, when you develop a new vaccine, you have to keep all this stuff in mind. And there have been cases where you give someone a vaccine and they actually have a worse reaction to the, to the disease than, than a better one. This, this happened with a virus called respiratory syncytial virus. Uh, back in the 60s, we created a vaccine. We injected it into a lot of kids, and two of them died when they got respiratory syncytial virus. And the reason is because the vaccine didn't work. So that's why when people say we need to get a vaccine fast, we need to have one now. No, 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 no. This is a, this is a drug that you take very slowly. You want to make sure that when you inject it into millions of healthy people, you're not going to make some of them sick or worse. And so um, people who are wondering why it takes so long to make a vaccine, well, that's why. Hmm. When we come back with microbiologist Alex Berza, we'll pick up our discussion of vaccines. Show.com. Welcome back. We're speaking with uh, microbiologist Alex Berzow, who's also a columnist for USA Today. And we were talking about vaccines. And uh, 
the good, the bad, and the ugly, the uh, texture that's required to understand the p- benefits as well as the potential pitfalls of vaccines. And, and Alex, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, those who are skeptical of vaccines, not just specifically the COVID vaccine, but vaccines in general. Well, they are uh, they are holding on to information that's just simply incorrect. They are saying things like the MMR vaccine itself is not safe. That that's just simply not true. It's not linked to autism. It's not. It doesn't do any of those things. The arguments the anti-vaxxers are using are, are bunk. They're disproven arguments. Um, so so you know whenever I whenever we hear information, whenever I see scientific information that comes out that casts vaccines in a negative light, I automatically think, oh no, this is just more ammunition for the people who are going to cause problems. And um, so, you know, I, I'm always worried about that, but I'm a scientist. I believe in seeking the truth, and sometimes the truth is uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's oftentimes complex and nuanced, but good heavens, try having a complex, nuanced conversation in America in 2020. <laughs> yeah, no, just just tell us beautiful lies. Uh, uh, Mick Mulvaney, former chief of staff of the White House, uh, president uh, in the White House, uh, said we still have a coronavirus testing problem in this country. Um, he's uh, arguing that Congress, rather than just passing another round of checks to distribute, should be looking at whether or not we have the necessary capacity as uh, states are continuing to test and, of of course, cases are continuing to build. And this could go on not just for this first wave, I guess, that we're still towards the end of, perhaps, uh, but in the second wave that we're supposed to be making preparations for. I don't know how anyone can seriously make that argument anymore. Um, At the beginning of this pandemic, we clearly had a problem with with testing. We didn't have we didn't have any tests (laughs) and people who wanted them couldn't get them. So, but now we we're testing. Oh my goodness! I mean, we've probably done. I don't even. I can. I couldn't even guess now. But it's probably in the tens of millions of tests now that we've run. So I don't know how anyone can seriously make the argument we have a testing problem. I mean, when, when we're detecting sixty-eight thousand cases a day, there were probably several hundred thousand tests that were run to detect that. So um, no, I, I don't. Um, I don't think we have a testing problem anymore. But we have a control problem where we're not able to control the disease. And Europe did get it under control. They implemented tough lockdowns. Uh, you do have to wear masks in public. Um, that, that, we're here in Poland. I have to wear a mask. If I want to go out to a, a grocery store or something, you have to put a mask on. Now, they don't, they don't make you do it if you're in a restaurant. But if you're in a grocery store or clothing store or something like that, you do have to. So there are ways we can get this virus under control. Um, it, it's a control problem in the United States. The thing with testing accuracy is that uh, I think there are probably different kinds of tests that are being used. I don't think we're all using the exact same tests everywhere. And so it would be hard to make a blanket statement about testing accuracy. I imagine some are better than others. But yes, uh, one of the problems with doing massive screens is you have a certain built-in false positive rate. That is not on purpose. We don't design tests to have false positive rates. There's just a, an issue that if you run 100 tests, there's going to be a certain, certain percent that come back positive that shouldn't be positive. Now, if, if you're getting 100% positive, I would definitely encourage you to look at your test and see be, what's going on. Yeah, it might should be right. a bit of a red flag, should it? Yeah, it's, it sounds, right. that sounds right. Um, as as we think about a second wave, uh, what should we be thinking about? What are the lessons to be learned for over the last four months? What should the policymakers be focused on? Well, uh, my goodness, um, I don't think anybody can even answer that question in the United States. I mean, we, we've got you ask 10 different politicians to get 10 different answers. Uh, I guess if I was a dictator, what I would do is um, I would encourage everybody to wear masks in public. I would encourage people to or, or mandate it. I would encourage I would have hand washing station or uh, hand sanitizing stations everywhere. I would encourage healthy people to get back to normal. And I would encourage uh, in, uh, people who are frail or immunocompromised or old to be really, really careful. They may want to stay home. They may want to self-quarantine. They may want to limit contacts with friends and family. Uh, it's not ideal, but, uh, you know, I think 
I think locking down the entire society is just not a sustainable solution. It destroys the economy. People get depressed. People are committing suicide. There's been an uptick in opioid overdoses in the United States. This is not a, this is not a sustainable solution. You can't lock down the entire population. So it's better to – if we're going to have a lockdown, you just do it on the population that is most vulnerable. You protect them in that way and tell everybody else, you know, keep calm and carry on. Just on the mass thing, I, I'm going to push back here a little bit. Um, do, what, what, what do we know about transmission in public? I mean, not I should say in public, but outdoors. Isn't it uh, negligible? Mm-hmm. Isn't it negligible? That's my new understanding of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's my new understanding of it. That if you're outside, the transmission risk is quite low. So I, I you know, I would, I think wearing a mask when you're outside is kind of pointless. Okay. But if you're if you're if you're if you're in a public space indoors then I would say wearing a mask is a very good thing. Because the CDC just now said that 40%, 4-0, of cases may be asymptomatic. Now, if that's the case, if that's really the case, this virus is everywhere, and we just don't know it yet. And, and then that means that you could be infected, you don't know it, so put on a mask. And, you know, the societies that got this under control, Asian societies, for instance, Europe, people are wearing masks. So yeah. I was very skeptical of that. I was very skeptical of it. But, but, myself. but, I, I, but yeah. I mean, but you're, you're a scientific guy, a scientific thinker. I mean, you understand post hoc ergo prompter hoc. Uh, wet sidewalks don't cause rain. So you got to give me a That's causal right. link between masks and, and, the, and, and the, the experience of other countries. You can't just say this happened and this happened. For so sure. one caused the other. For sure. For sure. So the mechanism we think that that works is um, it doesn't. <laughs> I'm going to give you a, a funny example. Have you seen the meme of two people and one person is peeing on the other person? Have you seen this yes. on the internet? <laughs> yeah. My kids okay. actually showed it to me, yes. Like, <laughs> it's like that, right? That if, if you are wearing pants and someone pees on you, you're still going to get wet. But if the guy who's peeing is wearing pants, you aren't going to get wet. So that's, that's the idea. See it? Is, is, uh, really brings it are, home. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. If you have a mask on, it's not really going to protect you from getting sick. So – what it does, though, is if you happen to be sick and you're exhaling virus and you don't know it, it's much more likely to get caught when, it's, when you're wearing a mask and you're less likely to spread it. So it's motor to protect society from you. Ken, I want to get one more data point here to get you to sure. react to and how the CDC, because, you know, we all CDC numbers. The CDC reports this, CDC reports that, and that's what we, we talk about. It's our Bible lately. Um, but, but, I mean, just in terms of you know, track records and how they do data collection and what they say versus what turns out to be true, what we should under the limits of what we can actually know in real time. In the 2017-2018 flu season, there were 239,000 confirmed cases of the seasonal flu reported by to the CDC by doctors and hospitals and 61,000 estimated deaths. That was an infection fatality rate of 26 percent. However, the actual estimated number of flu cases per the CDC wasn't 239,000. But 44 million, what? or 187 times the number of confirmed cases, which lowered the infection fatality rate to 0.0013%, or a death rate of about right. 1 in 1,000. Um, the CDC right. ha- has not developed or announced a specific ex- extrapolation model for COVID-19, as it has one for seasonal flu, an example I just gave you. Are we obsessing about data that really is going to end up telling us nothing? It's actually misleading us in real time? I think that's probably true to, to a large extent, that when, we, when we're focusing on the number of new cases and we're looking at the number of new confirmed cases, that doesn't really tell us anything because we don't know how far the virus has actually spread. And, and the flu example is a perfect analogy. When, when, the, when the CDC estimates 44 million cases of the flu every year, that's based on surveillance. They're, they're simply doing a – well, we had, you know, we had 100 cases in Seattle. We had 200 in Chicago. We had another 300 in New York. If you, t- if you extrapolate this out, we think there are 44 million across the country. That's how they come up with that number. It's, it's, a, it's a guess. It's a good guess. Um, 
and when you do similar number, when you do similar thinking like that with coronavirus, you have a case that you have an infection fatality rate of 0.65%. So less than 1% of people are dying from it. Now, the seasonal flu is thought to have an infection fatality rate of 0.1%. So COVID's around six times worse, but it's not hundreds of times worse. It's not thousands of times worse. It's six times worse. And so right yeah, now, from what we know right now, Alex, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. I asked the guy, hey, why thanks. you so fly? He said, funky coma data. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Former New York Times columnist, her um, resignation letter sent to New York Times publisher A.G. Salzberger that has gone viral because it is uh, a withering and seemingly spot-on critique of what the New York Times has become. I thought this uh, sentence was particularly salient. A new consensus has emerged in the press, but perhaps especially at this paper. The truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everyone else. Yes, the vanguard class, and you're not in it. Uh, She goes on to say, Twitter is not on the mass side of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. As the ethics and mores of that platform have become those of the paper, the paper itself has increasingly become kind of a performance space. Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences rather than allow a curious public to read about the world and then draw their own conclusions. And remember the backdrop of this as she reminds us. The 2016 election, where the D.C. press corps was dumbstruck at the outcome. How could this happen in my America? They were one big collective Pauline Kale. I don't know anybody who voted for Nixon. He won 49 states, Pauline. That says something about your circle, not about the country. And so I don't know anybody who voted for Trump was the updated refrain from all of these D.C. press corps panjan drums. And so they were going to commit themselves to get outside of their bubble, to go find out what is happening in the rest of America, find out who these people are who live in these faraway lands named Michigan and Wisconsin and Iowa. Uh, and uh, try to get a better understanding of how these people could not follow the lead of Dean Beckett and the rest of the jet set on the eastern seaboard. And that lasted for a little bit, and then the decision was made to scrap that and just become openly hostile and, as Barry Weiss suggests, uh, establish a orthodoxy that is to be enforced. And she's just tired of, I guess, operating in a newsroom where her colleagues call, as she says, call her a Nazi and a racist. I have learned to brush off comments about how I'm writing about the Jews again, quote unquote. That sounds like a very pluralistic, tolerant, thoughtful newsroom, a work environment, doesn't it? Is that a work environment that would be tolerated anywhere else in the country other than a newsroom or perhaps a a poli sci department on campus? Remarkable development uh, made all the more poignant by Andrew Sullivan's resignation from New York Magazine, (laughs) where he said, why'd you resign, Andrew? I think it's pretty self-evident. If you don't know why I resigned, then you're not paying attention to what's happening. For more on this and a couple of other topics, we're pleased to be joined by David French, senior editor at The Dispatch, columnist for Time and author of 
Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation, which is scheduled for release September 22nd of this year. David, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, your comment on the departure of Barry Weiss and Andrew Sullivan from the, their lofty posts at uh, the New York Times and New York Magazine, respectively. Yeah, I mean, this is what this is further evidence of what we're seeing about formerly liberal institutions becoming bastions of illiberalism. I mean, this is, you know, look, we all know that the New York Times is a progressive publication. However, for many years, uh, it has at least attempted and, and it has accomplished it in some ways more than publications and its editorial pages has printed a variety of perspectives, has hired people, including the rarest of rare birds of all. Uh, in mainstream media, an outright social conservative, Ross Douthat, who's uh, fortunately still there, um, it has printed a, a variety of, of opinions. It brought in Barry Weiss, who was a tremendous hire, in, not just because of what she wrote uh, when she was at the Times. She was also an editor who solicited other pieces, who solicited other, um, other op-eds from other writers. I worked with her uh, to put out a post on uh, free speech on social media or put out a piece on free speech and social media while she was there. Uh, and so she was determined to introduce diverse voices to The New York Times. And what was remarkable about it is how viciously vilified from within and without uh, the newspaper. I mean just absolutely vicious. Sure, fine, disagree with her. She welcomed disagreement. But that's the ominous thing here. It isn't just that these formerly liberal institutions are becoming more illiberal. It's they are becoming more illiberal in, uh, in a manner that reflects often cruelty and malice. And it's a cruelty and malice that radiates out of its pages towards the rest of the country. And, and again, look, this is the New, York, the New York Times is a private entity. It has the right. If it wants to become the nation, um, it can become the nation. If it wants to become like Mother Jones, it can become like Mother Jones. But I would submit that our country loses something, uh, and it loses something important when these former bastions of American li small l liberalism um, start to become uh, not just radically ideological, but often maliciously radically ideological. When we come back with the Bulwark.com's David French, we'll uh, continue with our discussion about the resignation of Barry Weiss from the New York Times, as well as the resignation and response from New York Magazine's Andrew Sullivan. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're speaking with the Bulwark.com's David French, author of the forthcoming book, Divided We Fall, about the resignations of Barry Weiss from. Uh, the New York Times and Andrew Sullivan from the New York Magazine. Let's dig into it a little bit deeper. He said, um, I think Barry Weiss's future is a lot brighter than the future of the New York Times. Do you agree? I'm not sure. I'm so sure I agree. Uh, I'm not sure, sure I agree either. I mean, look, you know, if you want to look at other liberal institutions that have really become ideological monocultures to an extreme degree, it's not like fewer people are trying to get into Harvard or Yale. Um, mm -hmm. It's not like fewer people are trying to get into Stanford. These institutions have centuries of prestige built up in them and wrapped up in them, um, and which is why you know people say the New York Times is over, the New York Times is over. That's really premature. I would just say that the New York Times is becoming a worse force in our nation and our culture than it was before. 
And that's that's what's ominous about it. You know, if you go to if you go to Harvard um, and, you know, there's some recent data showing that, that, you know, regarding the ideological composition of Ivy League faculties, you're going to be exposed to an awful lot of groupthink. And it's not that Harvard isn't Harvard anymore as far as the prestige of the degree or the desire to attain the prestige of the degree. It's just that Harvard is not in many ways has become a negative influence and a negative force in within American society because of its illiberalism. Um, and because of its increased illiberalism. And that, that, that's the problem. It's not like New York Times is going to wither and go away. Um, it's arguably got more, I believe it's got more paid subscribers than it's ever had. It's that, what is this doing to us? Yeah, and uh, last, uh, Reason Magazine uh, has the story. Uh, last, until last week, Gary Garrels was a senior curator of painting and sculpture at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Not anymore. He resigned his position after museum employees circulated a petition that accused him of racism, demanding his immediate ouster. Of course, uh, the, the, his removal was non-negotiable, read the petition. Is anything negotiable with them? Um, and um, the, uh, the petitioner cited a few examples uh, that, uh, to make their case for why he needs to be removed. Basically, uh, he um, uh, said that he is going to continue to collect art including from white artists. And obviously, there you go. Uh, uh, <laughs> I rest my case, Your Honor. Gary Garrels has to be removed. How dare he say that they will still continue to collect art from white artists, apparently suggesting that he's going to collect art based on the quality of the art, and there's no room for that sort of meritocratic speak in America. And well, you know, I want to. Well, let's note real quick. How much do these? How much do these controversies have to do with police brutality and civil rights in the United States? Like, this this is one thing that's absurd about a lot of this cancel culture now is that you've had you had this awful George Floyd killing. Um, you had a lot of concern for civil rights in uh, policing, and then it suddenly turns into this hyper elite progressive navel gazing. That is doing what exactly? You know what? What does that really do for racial justice? That that is, you know, if you, if you're concerned about real issues in the United States of America, all of a sudden cancel culture, this elite progressive fratricidal movement, is completely now dominating the national conversation. It's yep. it's remarkable. And and so doesn't it speak to the fact that of course it's not about racial justice at all. It's about political power, and uh, uh, what you have. Uh, which is really concerning, in addition to pr professionals uh, who shouldn't have their careers torn asunder so cavalierly, you have uh, institutions, so the arts, media. You were just talking about uh, elite academic institutions all coming together to enforce this orthodoxy that Barry Weiss spoke about in her resignation letter. Um, what road is it that we're on, do you think? <laughs> Well, you know, we're at a pivotal moment, and I do think that there are a, a lot of people, and, and you saw this happen with the publication of the letter at Harper's, which Barry and I believe Andrew Sullivan also signed, declaring allegiance to free speech and open debate. You've seen this in the founding of uh, the Yasha Monk new online community called Persuasion, where a lot of people who are left-leaning, smaller liberals are now saying, whoa, stop this. And that's honestly what it's going to take. I mean, illiberalism on the left is not is not confronted and defeated by the right. It has to be confronted and defeated by small L liberals on the left. It's just like illiberalism on the right is not going to be confronted and defeated by uh, left liberals. It's got to be taken on by classical liberals on the right. And that's be what's beginning to happen 
Um, and, and I think the outcome is in doubt. I do think that there are a lot of people who are sick of this. Um, I talk to them all the time. They're sick of it, but they don't yet stand up. And that is, that's what's got to happen. Um, I think at, at many of these Ivy League schools, a very small percentage of the student body dominates the ideological uh, debate. Well, uh, I think yeah. in these newsrooms, it's a minority that dominates the ideological debate. So help me reconcile this, because I want to fold in this other piece you wrote. The case for religious liberty is more compelling than the case for Christian power. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I get the point that you're making about religious liberty, and you, you make the su- suggest, um, and there's some evidence to support it, of course, that religious liberty is more uh, expansive today than it was, say, 30 years ago. But, but I mean, why don't we want Christian values reflected in our political halls of power, I mean, consistent with those values that were the foundation of, our, uh, of, of the nation's well, birth? I mean, I, I'm, if this is a struggle for, if this is a, I mean, just let me, if this is a struggle for power in a sense, then should we unilaterally disarm as Christians? Well, you know, I didn't say that it's a struggle between religious liberty and Christian values. Um, it was the question, the, the uh, work phrase is Christian values to reflect that Christians still have to make the case for the power that they seek. And some of them, quite frankly, don't, and they do it very poorly, and we don't want them anywhere near power, but unfortunately they have it. If you had a Venn diagram, for example, of the number of people who, say in their Twitter bio, say, put, uh, you know, conservative, Christian, MAGA, and then they're also running around trying to uh, argue that masks are an infringement on your civil liberties and that are condemning the Gates vaccine, I mean, it's a high overlap. So. We have to do when you're talking about who is in power. See, liberty is a right. I have a I have an unalienable right to religious liberty, as articulated in the First Amendment. The bid for power has to be justified. Yes, I don't have to justify an exercise of a right. Right. But a lot of Christian conservatives, rather than advancing Christian values, are running around advancing MAGA, and I don't see those as the same thing. All right, we'll have to leave it there. David French, senior editor at The Dispatch, columnist for Time, author of Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation, which releases November, uh, excuse me, September 22nd of this year. I'm sure you can pre-order it at all the usual places. David French, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. This is the Dan Prof Show. This is 60 Seconds of Sanity with Dan Proft. The timer starts now. This is something I wrote in July of 2016, the important conversation. It was after the five Dallas police officers were uh, murdered by an individual uh, who wanted to kill white people, you recall. We need to come together as a community to unify so we can have the important conversation required to begin the healing. Is there anything more vapid than a politician's patois in the aftermath of an act of evil? Even if no politician has said that exact sentence, it's an all too familiar message. Rather than confronting the evil that culminated with the murders of five police officers in Dallas, the public discourse is polluted by cable news anchor bots and their pablum puking pundits with banal obsessing about the acceptable parameters of the important conversation that never actually materializes. Instead of dialogue, let me offer this monologue. I am not a victim because I'm white and some lunatic in Dallas wanted to and did kill white people. 
The Dallas murders are not a proxy for the state of race relations in America. The Dallas murders do not represent an epidemic of hate, hate crimes, or blacks targeting whites. There is plenty of intellectual room between cops can do no wrong and cops are all racist waging war against minority. minorities. The reasoned room in between is occupied by most of the Americans who are not on television, radio, or Twitter. White police officers keep black families safe. Black police officers keep white families safe. Blacks mourn the deaths of white officers. Whites mourn the deaths of black officers. And we all, including police officers, mourn the deaths of those wrongly killed by police. Police officers should be held to a higher standard than civilians with respect to the use of force, but not to an unhuman standard. Police have the task of de-escalating confrontations, but civilians can help. A little compliance goes a long way to ensure all parties leave a scene with their bodies and rights intact. The problem is not extremism on all sides. That's another phrase stripped of all meaning through repeated misuse. If we're ever to get to the conversation of any consequence, we must dispense with the left, right, black, white binaries and talk of those who use persuasion versus those who employ coercion, regardless of the issue to be advanced or the grievance to be remedied. This is not a fail-safe. People get persuaded to do all kinds of terrible things. Thus, we must also confront the matter of evil versus righteousness. This is where we get to the evil that lurks in the hearts of men and spreads to their gray matter. Addressing that which rots our core and subverts our decency is actually where healing can begin. The important conversation, then, isn't one of disconnected means and ends, but rather moral clarity about how one legitimately connects means to ends in a civil society. We will not be divided... Uh, we, we are not as divided as is presented by the media, and we will not be so long as we ignore the professional agitators and the demagogues who decry incendiary rhetoric by using it. We will not be so long as we reject identity politics. We will not be so long as we dismiss guilt by association gambits, and we will not be so long as we refuse the privation of reason that is required to foment racial discord. And we will not be so long as we remember how we productively interact with persons who possess different characteristics than us all day, every day. If we can navigate all these important obstacles and those who wreck them, perhaps we can finally have that important conversation. That was four years ago. That's what we could have done. Four years later, where did we find ourselves? Uh, I would argue doing exactly the opposite of the things that we could have done that would have lowered the temperature on race relations, improved the situation, and led to more reasoned public policy in all of the directions we're now discussing, forced through a racial prism which distorts. This is Dan Proft. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Here's an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from uh, Philip DeMuth. He's the author of The Overtaxed Investor. Uh, the Biden tax hike would be severe. You know, we had this curious conversation Last week with uh, our friend Jimmy Pathakukas from the American Enterprise Institute, where um, James, who is clearly, uh, clearly he is uh, trending to, if not in the never-Trumper camp, sort of middling the question as to whether or not uh, Trump or Biden would be better for economic growth and prosperity. Well, I, there are things uh, on economic policy 
with which I disagree with President Trump, as I've noted on this show many times, but I mean, this is not a close call between Biden and Trump. I, mean, I don't know what Father Guggen is talking about. Yes, H-1B visas, we can talk about that. We can talk about uh, trade policy. We're just focusing on the most idiotic tax of all, a tax on work. You want more work, right? Yet we tax work, and Biden wants to tax it significantly more than Trump did. For example, uh, per, again, DeMuth, to see, to see what a good deal we have now, let's look at the numbers. A married couple filing jointly that shows $78,000 of ordinary income, their current marginal rate is 12%. When the Trump tax cuts expire, their marginal rate will more than double to 25%. Is that significant? Um, if you, um, you know, are, are able to uh, uh, accrue some wealth over the life of your w- working career, I mean, Joe Biden has, uh, you know, per the apparatchiks that are his policymakers around him, he has all kinds of tax increases that are, Wild and willy and woefully destructive. The top line here is the tax foundation concludes the Biden tax plan would reduce the size of the economy by one and a half percent, lead to five and a half, excuse me, five hundred eighty five thousand fewer full time equivalent jobs while lowering overall after tax income for all income quintiles. As DeMuth writes, this isn't a debate between growing the pie versus redistributing the pie. It's about everyone settling for a smaller piece of pie. Everyone. Uh, and so I, I just I don't understand where some of our free market friends are coming from. You can dislike Trump's personality, but to compare the t- approach on tax policy and even on spend policy, as bad as Trump is and Republicans have been on fiscal uh, policy when it comes to s- spending. I mean, again, it pales in comparison to the Green New Deal crowd, as we were just discussing with Bjorn Lumberg. So I just it's just baffling to me on the merits. This is not a close call for more on this. We're pleased to be joined by Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Um, it. Maybe it is time that we start to get into some of the details and the Trump team does as well to remind people exactly what the choices are. We've talked a lot about the choices between civilization and the lack of civilization between uh, law and order and lawlessness. How about between uh, growth and prosperity versus government-centric enforced misery across the board? So I actually have read through the entire Biden uh, uh, plan. There's about 150 pages. Uh, and I, I, seriously, I'm not, I'm not making this stuff up, Dan. Maybe one of your listeners can, uh, could call in and tell me if I'm wrong about this. I find one good idea on the economy, not one, especially when it comes to taxes and energy. And we're talking about just so people know what you're, you know, the background of what you guys are talking about. So the income, the, the corporate tax rate would go from 21 to 28 mm-hmm. percent. So that's about a, a you know, 25 percent, 30 percent increase in, in the corporate rate. Then on top of that, they raised the, um, by the way, how is that going to create jobs again by increasing the tax rate of American corporations? How does that create jobs? Then the second thing is that the capital gains tax, which, by the way, anybody out there who owns stock, if you have a pension fund, yeah. if you have a uh, if you have a 401k plan, if you even if you have a union uh, plan, where do you think those trillions of dollars does, uh, is invested? It's invested in the stock market. He raises the capital gains rate from 23.8 to almost 40 percent. Thirty nine six like the top bracket. Right. Yeah. And, and wait, I'm not done. 
people are ignoring this, but one of his most devious and sinister ideas is to get rid of something that has been a hallmark of the federal tax code for about 100 years, which is called some, which is something called the step-up basis at death on capital gains. That means, Dan, when you die uh, with your millions and millions of dollars, yes. if you want to pass that to your kids, mm-hmm. if you add up just those three taxes, you're talking about the biggest increase in taxes on investment income in the history of the United States. That's going to tank the stock market. In fact, I look at the stock market every day. I'm like, what the hell are these investors doing? There's a 50% chance Joe Biden might be the next president, and if he's elected, he's going to do this stuff. So it is it is very negative for growth. And by the way, the energy stuff is even worse. $2 trillion of government investment, a quote, investment in green energy. We're going, to, we're going to waste $2 trillion, and we're going to shut down our oil and gas industry, which will destroy the uh, economies of Ohio and Pennsylvania and West Virginia and Oklahoma and Texas and North Dakota and New Mexico. I mean, it, it's it's ludicrous. It's crazy. This is why I think despite all of Donald Trump's problems, I think he's still going to win this election because at the end of the day, people are going to go into that voting booth and they may not like Donald Trump. The polls show pretty clearly over half Americans do not like Donald Trump, but they're going to say, gee, am I really willing to invest? I mean, to you know, put at risk my lifetime of saving and investment and my job so I can put you in the White House? I'll see. So where do things stand with respect to the White House and Senate Republicans on uh, another yet another stimulus that has been much bandied about over the last couple of weeks, but we haven't seen it take form yet? Well, there was there was a yeah, great question. There was good uh, good news from Larry Kudlow. He was on Fox yesterday, and he said, point blank, President Trump will not sign another bill unless it has a payroll tax cut. So, and as you know, I've been a big, big fan of that. Uh, Larry Kudlow is a big fan of it. Steve Forbes is a big fan of it. Uh, uh, Art Lapper is a big fan of that. That that actually pays people to work. In other words, we're doing everything upside down. I know people are going to be, you know, surprised by this that Washington's doing everything upside down. Right now, we're paying people not to work. If you cut the payroll tax, you actually give people a bonus for working. And of course, my liberal friends say, "But gee, that doesn't help people who don't have a job." The best way to help people get. <laughs> You know, who don't have a job is get them a job and the payroll tax cut would do that. Life is so simple. Uh, (laughs) If you just follow sort of the economics 101 playbook, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And, you know, and the other thing is, what's the first rule of economics that I learned from Arthur Lapper? If you tax something, you get less of it, right? Mm -hmm. So let me get this straight. We're going to tax American small businesses. We're going to tax American corporations. We're going to tax American investment uh, by almost 50 percent more. And somehow... We're going to get more jobs. I mean, Dan, I can't, it's, it's, does that make any sense? What He calls this the Made in America tax plan. <laughs> What's going to be made in America? You're going to brought a trillion dollars into the United States and cut taxes under Trump. Now we're going to reduce that. The money's going to leave. Uh, and I mean, you know, I'm uh, just uh, as a point of order here. Um, I learned the first rule of economics from Thomas Sowell. The first rule of economics is scarcity. There's always more demand than there is supply of something. And then the corollary to that is uh, the, po- the politicians always promising more of that good that, <laughs> that actually exists as well. So that's the real uh, challenge that you have that runs into Art Laffer's uh uh, you tax something, you get less of it, prob- uh, uh, iron law, that is, I should say. Well, by the way, Dan, there's one other iron law, because since we're teaching economics this morning, you know, I think all economics comes down to Milton Friedman's famous phrase, that there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. All we've been doing for the last, uh, you know, four months is, is uh, dishing out free lunches to people. You know, if you're a company on distress, you get money. If you if you lost your job, we're going to give you money. Da, da, da. And, and at some point, you know, somebody has to pay for this, folks. And I, you know, some of my liberal friends say, well, yeah, we're going to just have all the liberal, you know, all the uh, 
enough rich people pay for this. Folks, there aren't enough rich people, there aren't enough Bill Gates and Warren Buffett to pay for $5 trillion of spending. You can take everything that these guys got. You're not going to be able to pay for this. Well, and the, the other issue, though, too, just in terms of um, if you uh, were to provide that premium unemployment benefit level of the $600 plus uh, per week, the additional 600 the other problem, the New York Times piece this week, surprisingly, I think it's they were cheer, cheerleading this uh, occurrence, but it, it was still telling, uh, profiling a bunch of small business owners basically saying, I can't keep doing this, which is to say the uh, opening and closing, opening and closing. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's, it's hard to get it's hard to estimate what kind of impact that's going to have. But, uh, you know, when you're talking about a quarter, maybe a third of restaurants in big cities that aren't going to make it, boy, those numbers start to go up real quick if you're open for two weeks, closed for three weeks, open for two weeks, closed for three weeks, which some of these states seem to be pursuing. It's, 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 it's you know, my hat goes off to the small businessmen and women who are the backbone of the economy, who somehow are commandeering through this madness. But you're right. You know, you, you that's what you're seeing in states like California right now and, and Arizona. Well, OK, you can go. And then the rules make absolutely no sense in terms of, uh, of you know, what you can open and what you can't open. But w- since we're on the economy, I, I want to add one other thing. You cannot have a functioning economy. Dan and Amy, you cannot have a functioning economy this fall if the schools are shut down. You have to get the schools open. And school children do not get coronavirus. Let me say it again. School children do not get coronavirus. So the idea that somehow we're keeping that your kid is more likely to be hit by, you know, crossing the street than getting coronavirus and dying. So why in the world? I don't know what the rules are in Illinois, but where I live in suburban Maryland, you know, they're they're saying two days a week of school. That's this is kids are going to lose a whole year of schooling severe damage to their lifetime earnings. He is Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics. Steve, thanks for joining us. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back and uh, discussing uh, dallas four years ago at the end of last hour when those five police officers were gunned down um that police chief david brown now the police chief in chicago Lessons learned. Well, where is Dallas even four years later as we stand here today? Uh, uh, four years ago, as I mentioned in my commentary at the end of the last hour, right, black man that killed, was targeting and killed five Dallas police officers was targeting white people. So now we have white and black people targeting white and black people based on whether or not you genuflect before the Black Lives Matter mobocracy. Seems to be. Uh, Damani Felder was dining out in Dallas, uh, dining his own business, having a night out outside. And uh, he uh, happened to be at a Dallas restaurant that was the source of a spontaneous, in quotation marks, Black Lives Matter protest. He recorded it for us, which was uh, nice of him. By the way, he's the the founder of the Wright Brothers, uh, which is sort of a YouTube sensation. Uh, But here's uh, what he recorded. Uh, having seen, he offered some particularly uh, important commentary, one phrase uh, specifically that I want to get to. But here's how it started with the chanting while Damian, uh, Damani Felder was chomping, uh, was, 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 chomp, was 
chomping, I guess. Chanting while chomping. Again, majority white crowd. Because they want to feel like they belong to something. This is this is the real problem that we have. In, I was enjoying my evening until these people came out here. Inside that pool. See? They're out here cursing. We've got, look at this. Look at this. We've got little kids right here and they're cursing like it's no big deal. We've got little kids right out here and they're cursing. Like it's, this is ridiculous. They don't really care. They don't really care. All they want to do is come out here and act a fool. Look at them. All they want to do is come out here and act a fool, right? So they went from the chanting to being a bit more disruptive. Went from chanting and cursing to breaking. Now they're throwing stuff. See? Tear gas is coming. Yep. They brought this on this entire establishment. They brought this on the entire establishment because they cannot behave and they can't learn how to express themselves like adults. And uh, the tear gas came and then that escalated the matter. Then the windows get broken, of course. Because they could not behave and handle themselves appropriately. Now they're throwing stuff. This is, this is the anarchy that they want. This is what they continue to do. Listen to it. Now we're breaking windows. I just wanted to share that with y'all because this literally just developed right behind me. And y'all have a right to see what the real agenda is. Because right here, this is people of all races, all nationalities out here having a good time. And these people came out here and they created a scene. They've created this chaos. That's what they want. And now they're out, they've ruined this evening, essentially. Because they cannot express themselves like actual adults. This is what they want. Think about a uh, Trump re-election campaign ad. Oh, in, with include Dem, uh, Damani Felder's commentary and the video that he shot. This is what they want. What do you want? This is what they want. What do you want? That's the choice in November. Civilization? No civilization. Rule of law? Mobocracy. This is what they want. What do you want? How do you think that would play in Peoria? I think actually pretty well. And uh, the president and Republicans should get to that straight away, as far as I can tell, because it's not just in Dallas. It's not isolated. You've had six weeks of continuous uh, violence and uh, civil unrest in Portland. Of course you have. And that continued. You've had uh, just in the last couple of days, uh, Portland courthouse defaced uh, a uh, federal officer beaten with a hammer. They're in the process uh, in Antifa, Oregon there, a.k.a. Portland, of trying to establish one of those uh, old current autonomous zones. Jason Rance is a talk show host out that way. He was on the Tucker Carlson's program with uh, Brian Kilmeade sitting in yesterday. He described situation on the ground in Portland. It's 100% organized. You have people who are either loosely or very closely connected with local Antifa organizations, whether they're talking about these loose organizations of individuals who just share their dangerous ideology, or they're literally communicating on Twitter and on Facebook and via Signal, these different apps, trying to get people to show up. And the reason why they keep showing up, the reason why you've had six weeks straight of this kind of violence is because every single day for the last six weeks in Portland and across this country, 
cops are being demonized and villainized. The bad behavior is being justified. You have politicians either too terrified to say anything for fear that they might upset the Democratic base that they rely on to keep them in power, or they're part of the people cheering this kind of stuff on and encouraging it. And so when you have this kind of message coming out, of course people are going to feel more justified to put up this kind of violent acts, whether it's Portland, Seattle, New York, or D.C. And this mayor gave a little, and he's paying the price, he's been humiliated, and didn't waste any time blaming the president, said he made things worse by bringing federal troops in. Really? Yeah. It's, it's always President Trump's fault. It definitely has nothing to do with the feckless, meek leadership of Ted Wheeler in Portland. It is so ridiculous. You have people who still want to pretend that the police are the problem. What's going on in Portland has nothing to do with George Floyd. Everything right now that's happening in Portland has to do with the anarchists, has to do with a greater socialist ideology. <laughs> Portland would be better served by having Kyle McLaughlin actually be its mayor, you know, from Portlandia, sitting on his bouncy ball. I mean, uh, talk about a caricature of itself. And Mayor Wheeler blaming Trump for what's happening in, in Antifa, Oregon. Uh, this is what they want. What do you want? This is what they want in Portland. What do you want, America? Oh, and um, by the way, since... Uh, Jason Rance brought up some of the other major cities where the same things are happening. Uh, how about, uh, have we forgotten already, the uh, one-year-old, Devell Gardner Jr. is his name, who was killed by a stray bullet in Brooklyn when he was just outside his stroller. Uh, Sean Hannity's uh, Lawrence Jones caught up with the grandmother and the father of the uh, killed, of the, the toddler who was murdered, Devell Gardner Jr., um, this is uh, what they had to say. Uh, first, uh, Grandma. For the cowards that did this, you should be ashamed of yourself because everybody talk about black lives matter. What about baby lives? What about teenager lives? Like you took an innocent child from a mother and a father as well as the grandparents. And I don't think it's fair. This is what they want? What do you want? Devell Gardner's father. Do you feel like the elected leaders, the people that represent the community, are doing enough to stop this? No. The community is just getting worse and worse. Nobody's doing nothing about it. Nobody. Nobody's trying to make a change. And it's sad to say that, like, every day is just worse. You don't know if you're going to live to see the next day. This is what they want? What do you want? Do you want to stand with Deval Gardner's father and grandmother? Do you want to stand with Damani Felder down in Dallas? Or do you want to stand with the thugs and the murderers and the lawless? Simple question should be asked of every American starting at the presidential level. This is Dan Black. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. I spoke with Michael Schellenberger, who is... uh, Longtime environmentalist, uh, columnist for Forbes magazine. He's got a new book out called Apocalypse Never. 
But this was just a remarkable piece that he uh, posted at uh, his uh, website, environmentalprogress.org. On behalf of environmentalists everywhere, I'd like to formally apologize for the climate scare we created over the last 30 years. Climate change is happening. It's just not the end of the world. It's not even our most serious environmental problem. May seem like a strange person. I may seem like a strange person to be saying all this. I've been a climate activist for 20 years and an environmentalist for 30. As an energy expert asked by Congress to provide objective expert testimony, invited by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to serve as an expert reviewer of its assessment report, I feel an obligation to apologize for how badly we environmentalists have misled the public. Here are some facts few people know. Humans are not causing a sixth mass mass extinction. The Amazon is not the lungs of the world. Climate change is not making natural disasters worse. Fires have declined 25% around the world in the last two decades. The amount of land we use for meat has declined by an area nearly as large as Alaska. The buildup of wood fuel and more houses near forests, not climate change, explain why there are more and more dangerous fires in Australia and California. Carbon emissions are declining in most rich nations and have been declining in Britain, Germany, and France since the mid-70s. And he goes on from there. There are many other examples. Huh. Well, science deniers, are we? Those that actually, I mean, it's very much like the pandemic. The people that are trying to understand and follow the science, understand exactly what we know and the questions we should be asking about what we don't know, you know, so we pursue what we don't know. They're the climate, they're the science deniers when it comes to climate change, when it comes to the pandemic. And the people that are operating solely from a basis in ideology are those who are the purveyors of science and data. That's a nice twofer they've done, isn't it, with the help of their control of all these cultural institutions, all the communication infrastructure in the West. But that's what they've done. And uh, Michael Schellenberger's apology will go a long way, hopefully, to undoing some of the agitprop that they're spreading. Children manipulated, like little Greta, manipulated by the, the same Borg of propagandists. Uh, another gentleman who was uh, doing uh, yeoman's work in furtherance of science and sensible public policy is uh, Bjorn Lumberg. He's the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Think Tank, and he's the author of Cool It, The Skeptical Environmentalist Guide to Global Warming, and he's got a uh, uh, just-released book as well. So you pick up Apocalypse Never by Schellenberger, pick up False Alarm by Bjorn Lumberg, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, hurts the poor, and fails to fix the planet. Bjorn Lumberg, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan and Amy, it's great to be here. Um, so uh, in uh, in your book, um, you uh, uh, talk a, a little bit about something that I think you've been one of the best at talking about. Um, one of the ways that we uh, deal with um, climate change is in such a way as to make people around the world richer, uh, to uh, try to do what we can to eliminate extreme poverty, because that turns out to be beneficial for uh, uh, the human being's ecosystem globally as well. Exactly. I mean, look, 
One of the things that we keep forgetting is we say global warming is this big problem, so we've got to help fix that by cutting carbon emissions. But look, most people are actually threatened by a lot of different natural things like hurricanes, but also by malaria and tuberculosis and bad nutrition and all these other things. Most of them are vulnerable because they're poor. This is both true, especially in the rest of the world, the poor world, but even for poor Americans. They are mostly vulnerable because they are not prosperous. And so we've got to remember, if you actually want to help people, if you want to move the world to a place where it's going to be much better, it is about making these people prosperous. We know how to do that for most of the poor world. It's really just about stopping their kids from dying from easily curable infectious diseases, getting good food, getting better education, these very simple, basic things. And what will happen is once you get rich, not only will you be a lot less vulnerable to hurricanes and fires and everything else, but you will also be much more environmentally conscious. So the reality here is let's remember what actually works. And one of the things that really do work is by focusing a lot more on prosperity. When we come back with Copenhagen Consensus Center's Bjorn Lomborg, we will uh, talk about what we might learn from the projected decline in emissions in 2020, thanks to COVID. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I really love to watch them roll. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're talking to Copenhagen Consensus Center's Bjorn Lumberg. Um, uh, you uh, also uh, point out that we, we have a little uh, real-world example right now, uh, unexpectedly, in a significant reduction of emissions. CO2 emissions declining, uh, expected to decline by 8% in 2020, which is the single biggest year-to-year reduction since World War II, I believe. And uh, so what can we learn from that reduction in carbon emissions? Yeah, and, and of course, what you're talking about is the fact that corona has stopped much of the world. So we have, you know, for, for years, environmentalists have been urging us to, could you drive a little less? Could you fly a little less? Could you turn off your lights and do with a little less? Not only is that a very, very, very hard sell, of course, but also we've just done that. That's what Corona did. And what we've seen is even if you dramatically shut down societies, you will still emit most of your CO2. So at the day when China was most shut down, it still emitted 78 percent of what it normally did. So we've got to recognize that cutting carbon emissions is not going to come from asking you to drive a little less or eat a little less meat. It is going to come from innovation. This is how we solve most problems in the world. We don't solve them by asking people to say, I'm sorry, could you do with a little less or with a lot less? We solve problems by making innovations that will both make ourselves better off and cut carbon emissions. So imagine if we could innovate green energy, the price of green energy down below fossil fuels. Everyone would switch, not just rich, well-meaning Americans, but also Chinese and Indians and Latin Americans. So the whole point here is if we invest in innovation, we're likely to fix climate change. And the good news is not only is it going to be much cheaper than what we're currently doing, it's also going to be more effective and probably it'll have a lot of throw-off effects. You know, when we develop better batteries for electric cars, we'll also inadvertently make better batteries for our cell phones. Something that's also uh, the the pandemic has also highlighted is some of this uh, vacuous virtue signaling that uh, makes its way into public policy in big cities in, in America and elsewhere. 
the uh, ban on plastic bags that was reversed uh, because, no, actually, plastic bags are more COVID-19 preventative than, say, coming in with your dirty cloth NPR bag. Well, but banning plastic bags was going to save the planet, and now we have to reinstitute plastic bags to save humanity. You know, it's, it's tough to follow these uh, scientists when it comes to public policy in this area. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we're only being told half truth. So on plastic bags, for instance, if you replace it with or with an organic uh, uh, cotton bag, it turns out when you do the analysis, you actually have to reuse your cotton bag 20,000 times to be less environmentally uh, uh, disadvantageous. Mm. And, of course, nobody's actually going to do that. So the reality here is we're being told a lot of stories that are half truth, but certainly not good enough to actually inform ourselves. You know, so take last year, for instance, uh, uh, headlines around the world, Washington Post, many other places, told us that sea level rise, which is a real consequence of global warming, will flood 187 million people. How did they get that number? They assumed that nobody over the next 80 years would do anything. You'd just sit by and watch. You know, wait to be washed you know, away. Your <laughs> knees and, yeah, no, no. And, Make and, an and look, the very same study, the very same study that came up with 187 million uh, also said if you assume reasonable adaptation, it'll not be 187 million people. It'll be 305 thousand people it'll be 600 times less but again what makes for best clicks on your on your news site of course you're not going to say oh it's almost no problem you're going to say this is a huge problem and that's how we scare our kids that's how we end up in a situation where we're basically made everyone afraid that the world is ending and that of course means we're willing to spend whatever it takes throw everything in the kitchen sink at this instead of being smart about both climate change which is about innovation about prosperity as we just talked about and then also recognizing we need money for a lot of other things for instance, to get ourselves out of this COVID crisis. There's, there's something else, though, too. So those scientists, let's talk about people who actually have the credentials and the knowledge. They know when they hear AOC's pronouncements that it's not right, that it's it's hysterically wrong. It's embarrassingly wrong. They know when they see Greta Thunberg manipulated and screeching at adults for not doing their part, that that is wrong. And it's frankly, um, it, it's undermining the legitimacy of real science and real scientists. Why don't they say anything? Well, I, I think so. You know, a lot of scientists are are, are also well-meaning. You know, if you if you talk to uh, people who who look at healthcare or look at education, they will typically be saying, "Do you spend more money on healthcare or spend more money on education?" Because that's the thing that they focus on. So it's not surprising that most people who work with climate change will say, "Spend more money on climate change." I think they all have sort of an institutional interest in in focusing on the, their thing. I think we have to demand as a public, given that you are asking for our tax dollars to ask for better evidence. And that is where, you know, uh, uh, the book that I've just written on False Alarm and many others are coming in and helping us to make a better sense of what works and what doesn't. We need to understand that when people are telling you the end is nigh, well, that's only true if you only tell half of the story. Uh, you know, famously, uh, uh, Secretary General uh, uh, of the UN uh, was on the cover of Time magazine last year uh, telling us, you know, he's standing outside of Tuvalu, one of those little island nations in the Pacific, and he was basically saying, they are all going to disappear because of global warming. But the reality is, if you actually look at the science, sure, sea levels rise, that's all of all other things equal going to create a problem. But they also accrete material. That's how they stay out there in the middle of the Pacific. When, when there's storms, they break up the dead coral. The dead coral washes up on the islands and actually elevate the island. And that balance has turned out over the last 40 years, at least, to actually increase the area of Tuvalu and Micronesia and all these other island nations. So we hear one story that's very, very powerful and easy to get your money from. But what we really need to understand is, overall, 
they're not actually dissipating. If anything, they're becoming a little bigger, which tells you this is not the end of the world. This is, as many other problems, a problem that we can fix if we do this smartly, if we don't panic. Just uh, going back to the secretary general on that magazine cover, uh, th- that is not good intended. That's not well intention. Uh, you know, good intentions. That's not a well intent. That's suborning at minimum, suborning a misdirection, if not suborning perjury. So th- there's something else going on too, where people are knowingly saying things that they uh, that they know to be false. Uh, it can't just be ignorance. It can't just be the road to hell paved with their good intentions. There's there's something malicious at least at least among some of them who clearly know better, don't they? I would think that they do know some of these things. Uh, I mean, I've met with a lot of these people. My sense is that they really do feel I am trying to do the good work. Uh, and, and so, again, I, I feel very reluctant to say that they're 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 bad actors. I just simply think mm-hmm. we need to be much more careful because remember, politicians love to be, stand up and say, "I'm going to be your savior." That's how you get votes. Yeah. And, and politicians yeah. have been doing this for hundreds of years. Right. And climate change is just the last and possibly best, the newest and, and possibly best way to be able to stand up and say, "The world is ending, but I am going to save you." Oh, and by the way. It's going to cost a lot of money, but only in the next election cycle. So, you know, it's, it's the right. perfect thing for politicians to say. I'm right. I'm uh, I'm going to mire you in poverty and destroy our economy, but I'm your savior and I'm well intended. Uh, OK. Bjorn Lomberg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus Think Tank. The new book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thank you very much. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo continues his star turn enlisting all who will listen, his brother Jimmy Fallon, to help him rewrite his record on combating coronavirus. He, he is being presented, as Jimmy Fallon dutifully did, his first show back in studio. How exciting. As a conquering hero, returning with tales from the front, like the one about how he tamed the viral beast. We went from having, Jimmy, the worst infection rate in the country. We now have the best infection rate. Uh, so we really turned the corner. New Yorkers stepped up. They really did the right thing. They did the socially distancing. They stayed at home. And we uh, we tamed the beast here in New York. So uh, we just have to cross our fingers and hope that it stays there because you see the infection is now all across the country and it's going crazy. And uh, we're just worried that the infection is going to come from the other states now back to New York, which would be a real tragedy. Oh, sure. You mean like how all the other states were worried uh, about uh, the virus coming to them from New York, like when half of Manhattan filed out of the state to places like Florida. <laughs> this guy, I mean, he's really something. Uh, we tamed the beast. Uh, 33,000 dead, but we tamed the beast. Case fatality rate, confirmed case fatality rate, seven times that of Florida and Texas. We tamed the beast. Yep, we're the model. And he goes on all the federal support that New York City and New York State got the equipment, the ships, the retrofitting the Javits Center as a makeshift hospital. 
and he has the stones to talk about, oh, there's two ways to do it, the right way like we did. And then, like, you know, those yahoos down in Florida and Texas are doing it. Don't forget the yahoo in the White House. Uh, why do you think the, 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 the virus is going up in some states and going down in New York? You know, look, we had two different approaches from the beginning, right? You had the president yeah. of the United States yeah, right. basically denying that the virus existed. Uh, I believe he played politics with it. You had these other states rush to reopen like there was no problem. But there was a problem. It was a virus. And you can't deal with the virus politically. You had to be smart. You had to get it under control. You had to do what we did. You had to close down. Uh, people had to take precautions, wearing the mask, right? We were the first state to say you had to wear a mask. Yeah, and you were also the state, uh, the first state to reintroduce the infected into nursing homes. I mean, 32,000 plus dead. Far and away the most in the country. Uh, so ridiculous is Cuomo's position. Even Jake Tapper felt compelled to weigh in via Twitter, writing, New York State has lost more than 32,000 lives to COVID-19. So while it's great that the numbers have gone down, it's perplexing to see crowing, Cuomo going on Fallon, etc. No other state has lost as many lives, not even close. New Jersey is next with 17,000 plus. This is Dan Proffitt. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com. Uh, our friend Joel Kotkin, uh, writing over at uh, Tablet Magazine, begins a, a piece on urban centers in America, writing, On the surface, progressive blue America, quote-unquote, has never appeared stronger. But what lurks just below the surface? Do we have uh, a so-called blue-aside going on, uh, similar to what we talked about with uh, David French as it pertains to the cultural elites in the context of the cancel culture, the Barry Weiss story in particular, uh, earlier in the show? Well, um, Carmen Best, you may remember her during the whole chap, ch uh, Chop Chaz uh, saga. She is the police chief in Seattle. She's black female. Uh, and it's worth noting in this context because, unfortunately, everything has to be discussed through a racial lens in order to address those who are demanding we discuss everything through a racial lens. So here's uh, what she had to say on the occasion that uh, her city's city council voted to cut the Seattle Police Department budget by 50 percent. Well, the easy answer is yes. We will be much less safe if they take 50 percent of the cops off the streets. Uh, they don't have a plan that I've heard. Uh, to do anything to maintain public safety in the meantime. Uh, I find this decision by the seven members of our city council to be incredibly reckless uh, and not taking into account the public safety of the other 750,000 people who live here in Seattle. Yeah. No, those are just uh, ancillary issues. Uh, she may find it to be uh, incredibly reckless, but she can find it surprising. 
she just had a city government that turned over a police precinct to the mob. I mean, can we uh, dispense with the facade of incredulity, please? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Joel Kotkin. He's a presidential fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University, the executive director of the Urban Reform Institute, and the author of a must-read book, The Coming of uh, Neo-Feudalism. I wish it was Neo-Federalism, but it's Neo-Feudalism, The Coming of (laughs) Neo-Feudalism. Joel Kotkin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. So on the surface, progressive blue America has never appeared stronger, but it doesn't feel strong when you hear the Seattle police chief, uh, uh, her comments about the budget cuts. Well, this is what's going to be really interesting. I mean, I think in the short run, um, and, you know, and, and I think a lot of the blame, you know, is the pandemic. And, you know, Trump certainly is, uh, you know, not showering himself with 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 uh, with great allure in terms of his being um uh, particularly successful, but but I think what is really happening is, yes, the blues are. are I think you, I think the blue states may have a resurgence politically, but as a model of governance, um, it's not very uh, successful. You know, for years in the urban space, for instance, people would always say, "Oh, well, you want to be like Portland or Seattle or San Francisco?" Really? Hmm. Uh, take a look at those cities today. Now, these are beautiful cities with incredible economic strength in terms of the companies located there. They've always been able to to attract um, well-educated people, and yet they're all falling apart. So something isn't working. Um, And even people in those cities are now moving to other regions or, or, or going to the suburbs. So the problem with the blue state model is it doesn't work. It sounds good. It can be it can be marketed very successfully. It, you know, it has the overwhelming support of the media because that's where the media is concentrated. But regular human beings, let's say, if you drive through downtown Los Angeles, for example, and and everywhere you look, there are homeless people and there are shuttered stores and, um, and 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 clearly, this is a society that is not exactly thriving. People will take that lesson home. Now, the, what happens is middle class people don't. They don't riot. They and usually they don't even protest. They move. <laughs> that you know that that that's that's a, that's a middle class riot. You know I'm getting out of here and I'm going to someplace that's safer, that works better with the schools or functional. And is that and there is there any bigger indictment of this model of governance than the the fact that you have people making uh, a not an inconsequential decision to pull up stakes and leave. I mean, that's the biggest indictment I, I you, one individual can offer against their government. I'm leaving because of the government here in Chicago, in L.A., in New York, in Seattle, in Portland, and elsewhere. Well, and the, and the problem is what you've had, this is it's kind of an interactive process. Middle class couples and uh, families, and by the way, of any race, mm-hmm. um, leave. They go to the suburbs or they move to another area. A, the population left behind, like I spent some time in the south side of Chicago uh, last year. You know, what they kept saying is that everybody who succeeds, basically, you know, many of them leave. That's just what happens. Um, and who stays in the city? You basically have the hipsters, you know, who don't have, you know, don't have families or going through whatever psychodrama they're doing in their lives, as, as we all did at, at that age. Um, and then you have the very poor, and then you have the very rich who can buy themselves out of, you know, your Gold Coast residents who can be very liberal because, you know, they don't send their kids to, to uh, public to schools. schools. Well, it, well, this this is this is it, and this is what middle income families are figuring out. Those that are leaving, which is a lot of them, right? Is that you this 
so much of the policy is being driven by these champagne socialists. And and basically, when you say defund the police, you're saying I'm rich. When you say keep the schools closed, you're saying I'm rich. When you say keep the businesses closed, you're saying I'm rich. I'm insulated from the consequences of all these decisions. I don't much care about the decisions, uh, about the impact of the decisions on, you know, the um, yeomanry, as you would describe it, because they're not really the constituency I uh, feel guilty about uh, trying to serve in this ham-handed way I'm trying to do it, this ineffectual way that I'm trying to do it as per the performance of these cities. So, uh, and this is how you have this hollowing out of the middle. And uh, if you have a hollowing out of the middle of anything, eventually it topples. Well, and the part of the problem is that the, and this is part of the, the dangers of this sort of feudalization, which is most intense in the, a lot of these um, urban areas, is there's no, there's no group of, you know, historically, it's been the middle class, it's been the small property owner, the small business owner, who kind of held things together, you know, the great uh, and, and, and left-wing uh, uh, political scientist, uh, Barrington Moore, said, no bourgeois, no democracy. Mm. Once you don't have a class of, of small property owners who can say, hey, this is going too far. We can't go this way. You know, even even if you think about a you know a system like the traditional system in Chicago, you know, which obviously is renowned for its corruption and all that, but at least small business per- person had some influence with their let's say their their alderman, or you know there there would be and there was a structure of if the public schools didn't work, there was a very healthy structure of Catholic schools that were an alternative that was an affordable alternative. Now you, those things are all being. Um, hollowed out, and so there's there's no restraint. Well, and it, on, it, and sorry, on, yeah, and sorry to interrupt, but, but in addition to that, just continuing with your feudalism metaphor, what you have then is if you're going to stay, then you are going to be made subservient to the government because everything is scrambled to maintain exactly the position the government currently has and, and in some respects expand on it. But, I mean, there is no – there are no government layoffs. There are no government furloughs. There are no uh, government closures in terms of, yeah, maybe buildings, but not in terms of personnel or people's livelihoods. And whatever it takes, whatever taxes must be imposed, what services cut to extract from those uh, yeomanry types, the serfs, I would say, in the modern era, that's, a, that's exactly what they'll do. That is what the indication is from all of these big city mayors. Well, and you think about, uh, you know, we, uh, L.A. Unified School District, for instance, they're going to go all online. And right. they can only work certain numbers of hours, and they don't have to do Zoom meetings. And they, you know, um, and yet we're going to pay them full time. I mean, okay, if, 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 if you're only going to work half time, then you should be paid half time. That's what happens to normal human beings in the real world. But in the world of, of our government bureaucracies and the, and the unions who dominate the politics, it, it's it's basically, you know, we're going to get as much as we can, no matter what, um, and you know whether you can afford it or not. And so, you know, what what's happening is that you're you're going to see huge drives for tax increases. I think that's coming. Um, all sorts of regulatory rules, like you know, we have people even proposing that you could have squatters' rights, where you know somebody can occupy, let's say, an apartment that maybe is temporarily vacant, and you can't get rid of them. Or you're going to impose really strict um, rent control. Look, I think the rents are out of control. There are other ways of dealing with it. You have, you have, you'll have rent control. You'll have people beginning to, to, you know, allow buildings to, uh, to fall apart. And, uh, and again, the crime issue is, I think, absolutely paramount. And 
you know, unfortunately, I'm old enough to remember when New York City, for instance, was a really dangerous place. Right. I remember as a kid going out of Penn Station and looking around, you know, making sure that there wasn't somebody, you know, you know, sneaking up on me. Um, you know, I had my aunts who were, you know, who were, you know, uh, who were, you know, beaten up and robbed in, in broad daylight in Brooklyn. I mean, you know, this is. This, this is not that long ago. <laughs> uh, Joel Kotkin, Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University, ED of the Urban Reform Institute, and author of the must-read book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. Joel, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show prognosticators and pundits and professors predicting the demise the political demise of president trump that he is uh, in uh a very bad place politically, that he has very little chance of winning re-election, that uh, the odds makers, the betting markets are all trending Biden. Well, one uh, academic is not. He is Helmut Norpoth. He is a professor of political science at Stony Brook University. He's uh, best known for developing what's called the primary model, which uh, the primary model uh, makes assessments on electoral outcomes, uh, particularly for the president. His primary model gives President Donald Trump a 91 percent chance of winning reelection on November 3rd. Ninety one percent chance. Trump uh, gets 362 electoral votes to Biden's 176 in Professor Norpoff's model. Now, it is worth noting that 91 uh, percent, that's about uh, his uh, success rate, his win percentage since 1912. I think he's predicted 30 of the 32 presidential victors since 1912 based on his modeling. Uh, so um, pretty, pretty, pretty accurate. So let's understand the model to understand how much faith we should place in it. Professor Helmut Norpoth, Professor Polyside, Stony Brook U, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, I'm sure you're not popular in certain sets, but uh, we certainly are interested in the methodology that you've used to uh, be so accurate when it comes to predicting presidential outcomes, including your projection for Trump-Biden in November. So explain. <laughs> you're right. I mean, I feel a little bit like uh, like a lone, uh, lone wolf was my, was my prediction. But, of course, that was the same thing in, uh, four years ago uh, when uh, – uh, just about, the, I mean, the same situation prevailed. Uh, very few people gave Donald Trump a chance, and I was predicting uh, that he would win with a chance of about 87% about this time or earlier. Um, but as you mentioned, uh, this is a model, um, and uh, the devil is in the primaries. The primaries are testing presidential candidates, and uh, especially the early ones, New Hampshire in particular, uh, the first one. And uh, as, you, as a lot of people may have forgotten, <laughs> Joe Biden came in fifth. Uh, in that primary in single digits, Donald Trump got about 85 percent and uh, would repeat that in uh, several other primaries after that. Now, Biden did better in uh, the state of South Carolina with the help of, uh, of African-Americans. That's that's true. But just uh, on balance, I think you could say that uh, that Donald Trump uh, clearly has the stronger performance in the primaries. And if you combine that with being a first term president running for election and having essentially no 
major opposition, a candidate like that has never lost. But if you compare that to some presidents who did have uh, opposition, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a sure thing that a president uh, doesn't have opposition. If you take, uh, for example, uh, uh, Bush the Elder in, in 92, uh, he had opposition in, in uh, New Hampshire from uh, Pat Buchanan. It took about uh, close to 40 percent. And uh, that was a very bad sign for uh, Bush, who lost uh, in the end. Carter in 1980, very similar situation. Uh, it isn't necessarily true that, that every sitting president goes through the, uh, the season unopposed. And, and yes, um, uh, Biden had a lot of opposition, but to come in that low is uh, very unusual. I don't know of any, uh, any candidate who uh, has finished that low uh, in New Hampshire who sort of uh, made it in the end. So, so explain the, the the using primary results as the basis mm-hmm. to make these predictions because that's sort of interesting. I mean, some might say, well, primary results because they're they're so anomalous. Uh, sometimes there's the the, uh, the the sometimes there's limited competition. Sometimes there's significant competition, as you were just describing. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's no competition on one side and a lot of competition on the other. Um, you know, uh, and and so with all those variables, mm-hmm. why don't we just look at this and say, well, it's interesting how accurate Professor Norpa has been, but I mean, you know, you can flip a coin uh, 30 times and uh, you could, you know, potentially be, you could have heads come up 28 times. So it's just, uh, he's just throwing darts at a board here. You know what the chance of that is? It's probably one in a trillion. <laughs> you don't get, you don't get 20 out of 30 by, uh, by, by, by Chancellor. Let me just say, let me just say one thing about the, uh, the competition in primary. New Hampshire is always competitive. You always have, have competition, even in the party of the president. And uh, there was a guy, Bill Weld, who I, yeah, I mean, right. is, a, is a pretty big name. I was a governor of Massachusetts, and uh, he ran uh, uh, in 2016 on the on the Libertarian line as as a VP. So he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't nobody. And uh, for him to only get about like like 10 percent, and and Trump ending up with with 85 is a, a big deal. And if you look at uh, sitting presidents uh, doing how they do in New Hampshire. Uh, Trump is really above a lot of other sitting presidents like Obama, like Bush, like Clinton, and so, et cetera. So, so he did he did something more than than just uh, normal uh, sitting presidents do. And Biden, on the other hand, I mean, did something abnormally bad uh, in 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 that state. So, is this a proxy for uh, the level of? base intensity, the level of party support for a, 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 for a presidential candidate? Is that what this is a proxy for? Well, it's part of it, but, but you see, New Hampshire is a very interesting case, and that's, that's why I, I think New Hampshire, New Hampshire is so uh, telling. New Hampshire, for all practical purposes, is an open primary. Uh, you don't have to be a Republican to vote in the primary, Republican primary in New Hampshire. Independents can always vote in it. They're about half of the electorate, plus... Uh, if you are, let's say, a Democrat and, and you had interest in, in voting in the Republican primary, you could change on Election Day. So uh, and the turnout is extremely high. It's one of the highest in, uh, in, in, in primaries, maybe even the highest uh, on, on a par with the, with the general election. Uh, the only the only drawback, uh, let's say, New Hampshire is a pretty homogenous uh, white state. It doesn't have very few uh, black Americans. And, and therefore, I have I've, for quite a while now. Uh, added South Carolina as sort of a, a as to, to, to to balance that 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 lag, especially for uh, for, for Democrats. Uh, I mean, you saw it in uh, with Hillary Clinton uh, in 2016. You saw it with Obama in, in 2008, and Clinton already earlier in 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 92. Uh, so with, with that sort of uh, uh, sort of amendment, I think you get a pretty good. Uh, idea from primaries early on about how strong a candidate is and uh, 
and uh, that kind of a strength, which 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 goes beyond the base, I think. I mean, this is not just the the, the pure partisan base that, that that you would get in a let's say a close primary, like uh, uh, I think Chicago probably has a close primary. I would I would think. Yes. Uh, New York has one, uh, and and uh, quite a few uh, states have that. Uh, so. Um, uh, I would say, I mean, it, 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 has, a, it has some, some uh, information beyond just the base. Um, what, what about, uh, so on this primary model, it's all based on those early states, or, or do you go back and yeah. you say, you know, I'm, I'm looking state by state, so Trump's going to win Wisconsin again based on the respective primary performances. He's going to win Michigan again. It's just based sure. on the early states. No, no, no. I, I don't do my electoral vote prediction sort of state by state. It's a, it's a, it's a national number. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of tracking that number for elections since 1912. So it's, it's predicting what the total number will be. And uh, I, uh, I, I was glad to, to, to learn from somebody who figured out that, in fact, that the number I predict is actually a real number. You could get that number <laughs> from various states. I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't do it this way. And, of course, it's, it's a very tall order. I mean, it, it means he would add uh, quite a few states to what he did uh, uh, four years ago, uh, uh, that might be a little unlikely. So, I mean, that's sort of pushing a little bit. But, I, but definitely, it's, it's going to be about 270, and, uh, and I think the chances uh, is, is very high that, uh, that this will happen. Very good. He is Helmut Norpath. He's a professor of political science at Stony Brook University. His primary model predicted 25 of the last 27 presidential victors, and he predicts uh, 91% confidence that uh, Trump wins re-election on November 3rd. Interesting stuff. Professor Norpath, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate There's it. No thank, thank you very much. My pleasure. You. No you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Has there ever been a more a time that more clearly demonstrates the axiom that uh, what politics touches, it destroys? As we see politics destroying the legitimacy, if not the productivity, of so many of our cultural and civic institutions and delegitimizing experts in so many fields. Uh, Lawrence Krauss, writing in the Wall Street Journal, notes a couple of important examples. In June, the American Physical Society, which represents 55,000 physicists worldwide, endorsed a quote-unquote strike for black lives to shut down STEM in academia. It closed its office, not to process police violence or racism, but to, quote, commit to eradicating systemic racism and discrimination, especially in academia and science, stating that physics is not an exception to the suffocating effects of racism in American life. Um, those sort of uh, declarative statements, evidence-free, the variety, uh, are a bit troubling. Certainly, Professor Krauss found them troubling. For more on this, we're joined by Professor Lawrence Krauss, a theoretical physicist, the president of the Origins Project Foundation, and author of The Physics of Climate Change, forthcoming in January. We've been talking a lot about uh, climate change policy, speaking of ide- the ideological corruption of science, our conversations with both Michael Schellenberger as well as Bjorn Lumberg. So uh, we look forward to discussing this as well with Lawrence Krauss. Uh, Mr. Krauss, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It was. Nice to be with you, at least virtually. 
Uh, yes. And so, um, yeah, I, as a theoretical physicist, uh, that uh, professional society, the American Physical Society, that's quite a statement, a uh, bit, bit far afield from the mission of uh, professional physicists, I suspect. Well, yes, and yeah, and it was it was extreme. I'm I'm a member of the physical American Physical Society, in fact, a fellow of the American Physical Society, and I was I was concerned about this statement. I mean, there's no doubt we want to encourage. Uh, we don't want we, we want to encourage ending any kind of discrimination, but the claim that somehow racism is systemic and that physics itself is is not an exception to the suffocating effects of racism, I, I found that particularly hard to take because science is. Is based on, on in, in a sense, unifying people and 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 quality based on, and progress based on, on quality and merit alone. And and if you look at if you look at things like the Large Hadron Collider, uh, the experiments there with thousands of physicists from hundreds of countries, speaking dozens of languages, dozens of of of, of, of different cultures, religions, races, all coming together to work together. And what that's one of the great things about science. Now, of course. It's true that you know there, there's a history in, in physics and certain, in many other aspects of our culture of, of sort of racism and sexism if you go back a long time. But, but that's true for basically the whole culture. And if you want to if you want to attack that, you basically have to tear down everything. And well, and yeah. I, I just I just was concerned about claiming that these things are systemic. Of course, there's examples of it, but but um, uh, this language of kind of oppression. Is 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 worrisome. It's true that that minorities are underrepresented in, in, in a number of areas of science, but but if you look at it, I think the the origins of certainly are not at the at the university level or beyond. Now we have to work on poverty and in the inner cities and all sorts of things in order to get young kids interested in science. And the the time to try and cure these things is not at the advanced level in, in universities. That's the time when we are basically encouraging people to to do their best and. And and I, as a physicist and chairman of a physics department for many years, I've, I've seen only efforts to do that and no examples of, of this kind of systemic uh, discrimination. Well, maybe if we took the Nobel Prizes away from, like, uh, Niels Bohr and, uh, and Mary Curie, that would be a good start. We could just call it a day. We wouldn't have to do any hard work. Well, I mean, that's the problem I mean, of this kind of cancel culture. The, 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 you know, you can – if you're interested in finding – uh, reasons to to uh, hate people. You can always find reasons. That, you know, the funny thing is, it's not it's not new. I I, uh, I recently tweeted a quote from Aldous Huxley from a hundred years ago. He said, "The surest way to work up a crusade in favor of some good cause is to promise people they will have a chance of maltreating someone, to be able to destroy <laughs> with good conscience, to be able to bad behave badly and call your bad behavior righteous indignation is the height of psychological luxury, the most delicious of moral treats." And I, I think that's the problem, uh, part of the problem here. And we, we we shouldn't succumb to that. I think we you know we people have good intentions. I understand they want to they want to fight discrimination, but to go into the problem of canceling people and canceling whole questions, and in fact that's the other thing. That, that I was concerned about is censoring people by censoring ideas because they don't you don't like them. Um, that's that's exactly wrong. We, if, if you think an idea is bad, you should have a discussion about it. Well, now you've just got El, you just put Aldous Huxley in the crosshairs. No more brave new world. Uh, anybody in shouting distance of you. Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I want to pick up our discussion there, though, and to also sort of the contradiction, the, the, when there are so many, but the contradiction specifically about STEM, more with uh, Lawrence Krauss. He's a theoretical physicist, president of the Origins Project Foundation, and author of the forthcoming The Physics of Climate Change. Right after. It's a shame the way you mess around with the man. It's a shame. 
This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're speaking with Lawrence Krauss, who's a theoretical physicist, president of the Origins Project Foundation, and author of the forthcoming The Physics of Climate Change. And, and just uh, to continue our, our conversation a bit more about uh, this whole shutdown STEM uh, regurgitation by uh, uh, the professional society representing 55,000 physicists worldwide, shutdown STEM. On the one hand, we're, taught we're placing so much emphasis on STEM at the K-12 through level, we need to make sure our kids are, do better uh, with the hard sciences and math. We want to get make sure that uh, those who are underrepresented in uh, STEM professions, we particularly avail them to STEM classes at the K-12 through level. And then you turn around and you have professional physicists saying, yeah, just shut it down if we don't get to whatever uh, level, whatever numbers you want us to get to in terms of representation of of, uh, of of individuals in the STEM professions. I mean, it's just so contradictory. We're pushing it, and then we're saying, forget the whole thing. Well, I, I mean, yeah, okay. Well, that's a, a, I think that's a little strong in the sense that, you know, they, they didn't want to shut it down completely. They wanted to shut it down per day. And the idea was to have, you know, sessions where people would be, raise their self-awareness and that kind of pandering to the, the, this issue. Uh, you know, as again, the intent, I think, was good to try and raise awareness, to try and encourage as many people to do science. But the effect, ultimately, is just... It's just pandering. And well, it's it's it's, it's 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 I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's worse than pandering. It's appeasement. And what you're saying is you can make a claim and I will accede to it, a claim based on your racial identity, based on your grievance. And I will genuflect before it. I will accede to it. So it could be for one day today and it could be for a week or two weeks or however long it could be altogether at some later point in time. It's actually quite dangerous, I think. Yeah, I think it, it can be quite dangerous. And I think the point, the concern is, of course, that it was just stated without any and without any backup, without any real evidence. And, that, and that's what concerned me as much as anything, because it's, it's a scientific society. Uh, one should look at the data rather than making the automatic assumption, the, the a priori assumption that there's systemic racism, that there's systemic oppression. That a priori assumption is what worries me when you when you know the answer before you even ask the question. And that that's the real concern I have. And, and also... Some things that happened during the shutdown STEM uh, and, and uh, uh, um, shutdown science protest, if you wish, uh, one group said, well, okay, we're going to take advantage of this to, to think about this. And what they did was ended up getting uh, the, the vice president for research at their institution at Michigan State University basically fired mm-hmm. because they didn't like they didn't like what he the areas of his research or the fact that he supported research they didn't agree with and and uh, so that kind of if, if, if a well-intentioned idea turns into a uh, what i think is a vicious action you have a real problem well and, and it's not just coming from the, the students or the professional agitators uh, up to the professorate it's also coming from within the professorate or or from the administration to the professor and we saw a, uh, a, a really concerning example of this uh, this week with uh, what happened at Princeton and how a classics professor named Joshua Katz is now being treated for daring to question the uh, uh, demands that uh, uh, more than 100 faculty members made on the administration, all in the name of racial equity and so on and so forth, that include the, a sort of star chamber that would uh, make determinations about professors' research projects as to whether or not they constituted any racial or other transgression. Yeah, no, I, I wrote about that. Indeed, I was shocked. I read that letter, and I, I, one can only hope that most of the faculty members who signed it didn't actually read the letter. Once again, they thought, oh, it's 
it's a nice issue. I'll sign the letter. But they, they, you're right. They proposed that basically there be a committee to oversee all research to decide if it was a racist. And, you know, and then how do you decide if it's racist? Another faculty committee gets together and decides what's racist. It, it's, it's really worrisome because it, it shuts down faculty. And in fact, in response to my, to my Wall Street Journal piece, I got lots of emails from faculty around the country, a number of them just using pseudonyms because they were basically, at this point, too afraid to speak up. And it was a concern. And one of the most ridiculous things, again, it sounds okay until you think about it, was requiring every department, this includes math, physics, astronomy, the other sciences, to establish a senior thesis prize for research that somehow, quote, is actively anti-racist or expands our, uh, our sense of how race is constructed in our society. So you want a physics honor student to write a thesis related to that. I mean, that's just... Uh, you know, I got someone wrote me a facetious note saying, "Well, one one way to do such a thesis is to get people of all different races and colors to to jump off the top of a building and discover that gravity will make them all all accelerate at the same rate." <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's just I mean, it, it's it's ridiculous when you think of that because the whole point of, of science, it's in it's, it's in some sense, it's like it's attitude about religion. It has nothing to do with race. It has only to do with understanding the universe and accepting anyone who's got good ideas and and can make quality progress. And and to argue that somehow the action of doing physics in a senior thesis is going to be anti-racist, it it sounds good until you think about it, and then you realize it's nonsense. I'm old enough to remember when uh, physics was about understanding the physical world, as, as you were sort of describing and I wonder what you think the future of science is in this climate. I mean, how worried are you? Is this, oh, just, you know, everybody's trying to respond and pander in the moment and things will calm down and go back to normal? Because I, I'm a bit skeptical. I think uh, that we've been on a path for a long time and we're accelerating down that path. And it's a dead end. Well, look, I mean, it depends on, on the day whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic. I am worried that many faculty feel are afraid to say what they speak. And, you know, the uh, academia is supposed to be one of the places where where open discussion is encouraged. And what scares me is that faculty are, are afraid to speak, not just because of the, of the social media mobs, but what, what is even more concerned is the fact that the academic administrators are not backing them up, that those academic administrators are caving in immediately, uh, because, immediately uh, on, on, uh, on the basis of any kind of criticism. And, and so they should, and that's what really worries me, because the faculty, unless the administration supports the faculty, you're going to see them cave in left, right, and center. And, and, uh, I think we need – there's lots of reasons for that, but I'm very disappointed in that. I think ultimately, of course, most scientists are, are, are basically just trying to do good science, and, uh, and at least in, in areas like physics, they're going to they're gonna focus on the physics. But the fact that they can't speak out, especially against nonsense, is a worry. I, 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 I'm particularly worried also – when in a global sense, science will continue to be done, but if you look at – at, at, at the United States, part of its economy has been based on the fact that we brought the best, best and brightest young people from around the world to the United States to study and to study in, our, in the best graduate schools in the world. And if we start diluting our studies by, uh, by this kind of uh, uh, censorship and, and guidance, you're going to see students go elsewhere. And, and, uh, and of course, the science will be done, but it, but it won't be good for this country. Mm. He is Lawrence Krauss. He's a theoretical physicist. He's the president of the Origins Project Foundation and author of The Physics of Climate Change, which is forthcoming in January. Uh, Professor Krauss, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Sure. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Who takes every kind of people make what life's about, yeah. The more you listen, the more you'll know. 
This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back. Going back to Barry Weiser's resignation letter from the New York Times. She uh, writes, I was always taught journalists were charged with writing the first rough draft of history. Now history itself is one more ephemeral thing molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. Predetermined narrative. How could I forget? How could I read the New York Times story about this uh, Texas man, 30-year-old, who uh, allegedly uh, died uh, at a San Antonio hospital after attending a quote-unquote COVID party. His uh, dying utterance, as the New York Times, in its initial version of the story, reported, I think I made a mistake. I thought this was a hoax, but it's not. Dr. Jane Appleby of Methodist Hospital in San Antonio recounting the uh, victim's alleged last words. As uh, Michael Brenda Doherty writes in National Review, the story has real didactic power in our current environment. Young person, red state, believed the virus was a hoax, failed to socially distance, and now he's dead. Can happen to you, can happen to anybody. It's Melinda Gates. One of us has COVID. We all have COVID. You have COVID in Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, Bismarck could be the next New York City. Uh, as he writes, does Michael Brendan Doherty going back to him. It's a morality tale, really. You believe all those things that we're saying uh, people who don't subscribe to the orthodoxy on lockdowns believe you're going to die. But if you click on the article now, thanks. Good. Good to catch by Michael Brendan Doherty. You find a new few pair. You find a few paragraphs of hedging now added in the Times, New York Times could not independently verify Dr. Appleby's account. On Monday, the San Antonio Health Department said its contact tracers did not have any information that would confirm or deny that such an event had happened there, that COVID party. In recent days, the hospital distributed video of Dr. Appleby describing the case, along with a press statement. She did not say when or where the party took place, how many people attended, how long afterward the man was hospitalized with COVID-19. She said she was sharing the story to warn others, especially in Texas, where cases are surging. Hmm. Long after the publication were these additional paragraphs added to qualify some of the takeaways. Why? Uh, they also indicate, um, writes Doherty, where the story originated. The young junior reporter who wrote it isn't in Texas, sit, but sitting at a desk, presumably at home. There's another additional paragraph saying that the Times tried several times to the hospital to contact the dead man's family to no avail. You might also note the entirely different subheadline. Health experts have been skeptical that such parties occur, and details of this case could not be independently confirmed. In fact, the story seems to have changed several times since publication in order to salvage whatever's left, and that's my parenthetical remark, whatever's left of the New York Times' own credibility. The story has been transformed edit by edit from a, 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 one of a man who died taking a foolish risk in which the doctor was the only source to a story about the questionable claim a doctor is making. No editor's notes on it documenting the charges in the published story and the huge tonal shift from credulousness to skepticism. Mm. Remember, the, uh, the, the imperative here is moral clarity in support of the narrative, not journalism. You got me, New York Times. I'll do better next time. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.